0: Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. There's a certain irony to feeling like an outsider, to not fitting in, which is that I'd, you know put good money on a bet that literally everyone feels that way sometimes like who is out here being all oh yeah i feel totally comfortable here and everyone around definitely gets me and appreciates me you know like a hundred percent of the time today on the show we've got two different takes on fitting in or you know not fitting in actually in a bit we'll hear about a ya novel that's about how being bilingual is a hurdle of identity for a lot of kids but first the actor simu lu you know him as marvel's Ang Chi just wrote a memoir. It's called We Were Dreamers, and in it, he writes about how fitting in with his immigrant family was weird for him. Because, you know, as a teenager, he wanted to do teenager stuff, cut class, hang out with girls, play sports. But his parents, who'd gone through a lot to get to Canada, we're not having it. Liu talked to Here and Now's Anthony Brooks about how he looks back on their rough relationship now in light of all of his success and how he sort of not excuses some of the things they did, but understands them.
1: And now a conversation with a real superhero, or at least with someone who plays one on the big screen. So here he is being introduced at the 2018 Comic-Con. It is a huge honor for me to introduce you to the incredible Simu Liu. That was a big moment for the Chinese Canadian actor Simu Liu when he was introduced as Marvel's first Asian superhero, Kung Fu Master Shang-Chi. Now the young actor has a new memoir about his journey from his native China to Canadian immigrant to failed accountant to successful superhero actor. As he writes, the journey wasn't always easy. Simu often clashed with his strict, hardworking Chinese parents who put a lot of pressure on him to be successful. His new memoir is called We Were Dreamers, an immigrant superhero origin story. And Simu Liu, welcome to Here and Now. Great to have you.
2: Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much.
1: Well, there's a lot in this book about your parents. I want to ask you about them. They grew up in China. They came of age during Mao's Cultural Revolution so tell us something about how they grew up and the lives they lived growing up.
2: My parents were born in the, you know the, the late fifties, early sixties, so they were teenagers at the time that the um, the Cultural Revolution was in full effect. And so one of the main things that happened around this time was the government shuttered universities all across the country. So the path was you would go to high school and then you know, students would go off into the fields to basically learn the value of, of hard labor. My dad was about 16, 17. My mom actually graduated and then went off to the fields for two years. There was no guarantee that they would be able to continue their education and through that education be able to achieve upward social mobility. Um, right. But then in 1976, Mao passed away. And Mao's successor immediately restored the, you know, university entrance exams and restored universities all across the country. So then, you know, my parents both managed to get offers to the same university where they would later meet and fall in love and marry. But they were competing against not only their own cohort, but 10 years worth of applicants who had been deprived of a post-secondary education.
1: Oh, and wow. So, so there must have been a lot it, of pent-up demand there. Yeah, Right.
2: The national acceptance rate was something like, you know, in the single digits. And um, mm. it was those odds that my parents were able to overcome just to be able to get that education, which they then, you know, completed. And then were working in China when another dream kind of incepted into their minds, this idea of immigrating and exploring life in a totally new environment.
1: So they come to Canada. They end up getting jobs mm-hmm. as engineers. They left you behind for a while to be raised by your grandparents. You eventually joined your parents in Canada, but life wasn't easy. And I wanna play a little bit more uh, sound from your Comic-Con experience uh, there in 2018, where you talk about your parents a little bit. Let's listen to what you said. My parents
2: immigrated from China to Canada 25 years ago with nothing except the hopes and dreams to build a family and to build a life for their kids. And all I've ever wanted to do growing up was to make them proud. And so basically what I'm trying to say is I'm really, I'm really happy that I'm not a doctor. And so (laughs) take that mom and dad.
1: (laughs) So you joke (laughs) about it there. But, but as you write, Simu, you, you know, your parents expected you to be a doctor or a scientist like them, and they put a lot of pressure on you growing up. Can you tell us what your relationship was like with your parents when you were in high school, for example, what was it like?
2: Their entire definition of success is so closely tied with academic achievement. And so, yeah, Mm. the path forward for me, according to them, was excelling in science and engineering or medicine or some field. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. When I Went through puberty, I started to want to do other things like get a girlfriend and play sports and skip classes and all the you know <laughs> things that dumb, rebellious kids want to do. And that just didn't sit well with my parents. And we fought constantly.
1: Right. There's a particularly painful scene that I want to ask you about. You described this. This is with your father. It's in the middle of the book. You're in high school and you have your first girlfriend who you brought mm-hmm. to the school dance your dad catches wind of this and is outraged that she doesn't even go to your school. He says you're a source of shame. He asks, mm-hmm. are you even my son anymore? And he hits mm-hmm. you
3: uh,
1: repeatedly, mm-hmm. you say. And, and, and I think this might be hard for people to understand who are listening now. How do you make sense uh-huh. of his reaction now?
2: I don't necessarily defend or justify those actions but I think looking back and and just feeling the anxiety that my parents must have felt at the time yeah. of having sacrificed and worked so hard to be able to give their son every possible opportunity and at that point I'd been enrolled in you know a, a private school for gifted kids and it was a very high achieving environment. And so the reaction that came, Simu has a has a girlfriend that doesn't even go to the school. It was that feeling of frustration of like, what is this kid doing with everything that we've given him? making it in the in right. this country was not easy for them. And, and I think in my parents' mind, they always operated in a scarcity and survival mindset of like, this can be taken from us and we can lose it all. The only thing that we have to rely on to keep us going is our jobs, our careers, which are propped up by our strong educational background. And so for their terribly rebellious kid to be going off and Playing hooky and hooking up with girls that don't even go to the school it was a pretty tough pill for them to swallow. And of course, you know, we our, our relationship has changed so drastically. But I did think that it was very important for me to articulate these not great moments in our history, not to air out dirty laundry or to somehow point the finger at them and say, see, look at all that you did. But really as a means of connecting to other families and children that are going through those same pains and struggles as intergenerational and intercultural families and finding some sort of a a point of connection.
1: Well, you mentioned that the relationship is better now. What what is your relationship like with your parents right now?
2: Well, for starters, I'm in in an apartment in London right now. My parents have been visiting me all week. So they're in the bedroom about (laughs) five feet away from me trying to keep quiet (laughs) so that I can do this interview. And um, they're my biggest fans. My father's recently retired. So he basically spends all day searching up everything I do on social media and every single news article that ever mentions me. And as frustrating and as crazy as that drives me, um, you know, we've really become quite close. And when I first came to them with this idea of telling our story, not only my personal story, but the story of our entire family, they kind of balked at it, not out of some fear of being ostracized, but out of this, this incredible, you know, they just, it was so incredulous to them that they had lived a memoir worthy life. And yeah. to me, you know, part of the joy in writing this book was getting to share their extraordinary journey with the world. One that they would not themselves think of as notable in any which way. But for me, I feel like the odds that they were able to overcome are easily as crazy and as ridiculous, if not more so than of me Getting this role of a lifetime.
1: Well, it's an incredible story on many levels. Sticking with with uh, this example that your parents set, though, you write extensively about how important it was for you to please them. You even tried to become an accountant uh, to please them. Mm. How did that go?
2: It did not go very well. Um, <laughs> I was uh, <laughs> I lasted about eight just grueling, horribly torturous months before I was finally put out of my misery. And for very good reason. I was, by all accounts, a terrible employee. But out of the rubble of that, and obviously it was devastating when it happened, especially looking at all the time and money my parents had invested in me. But but you know, being able to pivot from that, looking back now, getting laid off was truly a gift. I thought, hey, why not audition for some things? I'd always been interested in it was really just the beginning of that tiny snowball that eventually became, you know, this, whatever this is.
1: Right, this big thing, this big thing that is now. I want to ask Mm -hmm. you a little bit about your early career because it sounds as though to get work, you had to be willing to accept several roles that played on asian stereotypes. And you write about mm-hmm. this in the book and I'm thinking about the movie Bike Cop Begins, right? You played Yakuza Koto, the leader of a trio of japanese mobsters. Yes. So they get the so they get the chinese guy to play the japanese mobster. And I'm just wondering sort of how tough that was for you.
2: Look, look looking back and even reliving some of those Projects that I was a part of. I mean, I, I just want to reach back and slap my younger self in the face. You know, <laughs> I think it just goes to show you just how limited we were in our opportunities at the time. That I, I was willing to do it because, guess what? All of the representation that I saw on screen was basically, effectively, the same thing. It, they were stereotypes and caricatures. And when I when I look back, obviously those those roles weren't ideal, but they also, in a way, got my foot in the door.
1: Right. What do you want readers to take away? What do you want the most to take away from your stories?
2: The best way I can articulate it is, you know, sometimes in life when we're when we're walking down the street, we're on our way to work, or we're in the we're in the grocery line, and we see somebody, we deal with somebody who speaks English with with a bit of an accent, and we kind of remove ourselves, and, and we say, "Oh, that's that th- those people aren't a part of our, our society; they're just visiting." We minimize them in a way. And what I hope to do with this book is to just shed a light on people like my parents who, who by the way, do speak fantastic English. You know, they just happen to have an accent. And the reason why they have that accent is because they've lived an extraordinary life. Each and every person that we see on the streets in Canada and America that don't speak English as their native language, each one of those people has an equally incredible story of how they got here. And sometimes I think we forget that even growing up, observing the way that my parents were treated was a lot of impatience and indifference. And um, yeah, I just hope that we can humanize those stories. And especially because my parents are, are the first to minimize themselves and to say, no, please, you know, they, they want nothing more than to make themselves small and invisible. But, um, you know, for me, I just think there's such tremendous value, not only for Asian Americans, for everyone to really read their story and the story of our family of dreamers and to understand that, you know, we exist as well and we matter.
1: Well, that's actor Simu Liu. His new memoir is We Were Dreamers, an immigrant superhero origin story. Simu Liu, thank you so much. It was a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you.
2: Thank you.
0: In Margarita Engel's new book, Singing with Elephants, there's a lot of going back and forth between English and Spanish. And in this interview with NPR's A. Martinez, she talks about how publishers used to italicize Spanish and leave the English unitalicized which makes sense if you are a native English speaker but if you're not it definitely signals something an imbalance you know a sense that one language is default and the other is you know an other and in choosing not to italicize to keep both languages i guess normal, for lack of a better term, she makes this argument that, yeah, it might be a little confusing for some. But if you listen, really listen to the context and music and poetry of the words, you'll get what's being said.
3: Cuban-American author Margarita Engel explores what it's like to be an outsider in her new novel Singing with Elephants. Her Cuban-born protagonist, 11-year-old Oriol, left the island nation to live in Santa Barbara, California. She's learning English. Her playmates are the animals at her parents' veterinary clinic. And as Engel explained to me, Oriol's life changes when she befriends the diplomat Gabriela Mistral, who happens to be the real-life winner of the Nobel Prize in literature, the first Latin American author to do so.
4: I wanted to imagine how it would feel for a child to live near a Nobel Prize-winning poet And to see her out writing under the trees, she loved to write outdoors, and to wonder if she could write poetry, too, and if it would be a refuge for her, as it seemed to be for this Nobel Prize-winning poet.
3: Now, why did you choose to write this story, uh, interspersing English and Spanish all throughout?
4: Well, I've done that all along with all of my verse novels, Ten years ago, uh, publishers put the Spanish in italics, so people didn't really think of it as bilingual in the same way because the Spanish was kind of separated by the italics. But that's no longer the publishing tradition. Now they're just used as equal languages, the way they are in our minds, if we know them both and we think them both. We don't stop to replace an English word with a Spanish word. They just run together freely. But it's, you know, the way bilingual people think.
3: I can't imagine that happening today because that really, really kind of puts it into your head that Spanish is the other, right? it's, It's not from here. And it makes it crystal clear in the middle of italics.
4: I don't think that's why it was done. In fact, I kind of of surveyed teachers before I made up my mind to change Mm -hmm. a few years ago, and they agreed that there are many words that could be confusing to a young reader who's just learning to read either language, and yet uh, that is still the new approach is to uh, hope that it's Understood. And to try to make it clear in the context. I don't want anybody to feel left out. Someone who doesn't uh, read Spanish, I would hope that it's clear enough in the context where uh, I wouldn't lose the ability to communicate with children who only read English.
3: Yeah, and being left out, to me, it seems like that's uh, very much what this book is about, how difficult it can be to fit in when English isn't your first language. So how do you overcome these inadequacies uh, that, uh, that, as a kid, you already feel inadequacies uh, by the bunch, but this added in as an extra layer?
4: Well, this book is set in 1947, My mother came to the United States as an immigrant to marry my father in 1948. And she didn't know English. Uh, My father only knew English. My mother only knew Spanish. They had met in Cuba, but they were artists. So they passed pictures back and forth to get to know each other. And it, it was love at first sight. They communicated without knowing the same language. But as my mother learned English, she had a very heavy accent and still does to this day at the age of 91. And people made fun of her accent. So I kind of put some of that into this story.
3: So on that, can you read for us not completely bilingual yet?
4: Yes. Maybe I should tell la poeta that I know she's famosa and maybe we should switch back to Espanol instead of practicing English. My mouth feels like an acrobat, but I'm determined to learn poetry, words, English, everything she can possibly teach me. So I just keep speaking, push through as if my tongue hasn't been tied into knots.
3: Margaret, I chose this poem because it really hit home for me. So when I was a kid, I had to learn English in the first grade. Uh, I was born in the United States, but never spoke English uh, to anyone because we were a very closed-off family, and we only hung out with other Spanish speakers. So there was never a need until I had to be thrown into a first-grade classroom in the middle of a Koreatown in Los Angeles. And I think sometimes, you know, the struggles that can come with trying to learn something on the fly and fit in at the same time are very, very uh, tough to uh, to understand unless you're going through it yourself.
4: You you know, there are children in every classroom learning a language, whether it's English or not, but everywhere in the world, you know, with refugees dispersed, people are are learning new languages and, and adapting to new homes. So that's, you know, I really feel sympathy for what you're saying. I grew up with both languages in the home, but for me, Poetry is also a way around that because poetry is musical and music is a universal language. And I think that we can enjoy that music even when we don't understand every word.
3: How do you believe uh, yourself that maybe the writing can be explored in one's identity, a sense of belonging? I mean, when Oriel first, uh, when she learns about metaphor, she says, I am an echo of the place where I used to live. So how does transforming yourself uh, kind of play into that?
4: As we mature and then go to school and encounter people from all different backgrounds, it's kind of a shock to, for anybody in any language to seek a sense of belonging with people who aren't from your family, people you don't know. And yet there are these universal languages like poetry, which is musical and is rooted in emotions. And I feel like that's a refuge. For me, when I think of where have I ever had a sense of belonging, I have a sense of belonging on the page. That might sound strange, but um, my favorite line of poetry is by a Cuban poet, Dulce Maria Loinas, mi verso soy libre. In my verse I am free. And that's how I feel. In my verse I am free. And that is where I find a sense of refuge. And I hope that young readers, not just the young children who would read Singing with Elephants, that's written for middle grade, but also teenagers, they would find a sense of refuge in poetry and be able to write their own as well. Have a place, a safe place for those emotions.
3: Margarita Engel, her new book is called Singing with Elephants. Margarita, thank you very much.
4: Thank
0: you. Thank you. That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. If you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org newsletter books. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. The podcast is produced by Miranda Mazariegos and edited by Megan Sullivan and Taylor Burney. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Tamar Charney, Janet Ujung Lee, Anjali Sashtiu Krebchek, Kat Posado, Timbi Ermias, Mia Venkat, Sarah Handel, Daniel Hensel, Fernando Naro, Emiko Tamagawa, Kurt Gardiner, Sean Saldana, and Rina Advani. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening.